As has been mentioned already today, it's a delightful blessing and privilege each of us have been given this Sunday morning, the first day of the week, to assemble and to gather. As the New Testament sets that before us, it truly is something that not only pleases God, but allows us to express the heartfelt feeling that we have to the very one who made us and the one who has promised so much through Jesus Christ our Lord. As we come together today, we not only are thankful for the opportunity to worship in truth and in spirit, but as we do that to equip our lives in those things we can do to safeguard ourselves for all eternity. You may have noticed on the wall to my left, as well as in the bulletin, the title of the lesson today will have to do with a name. It shall give consideration to a sweet, sweet name. Some of these introductory remarks, I suppose, will be a fair way to begin these considerations. It's a rather amazing thing to think about the greatness of a name. It's true, isn't it, that as a couple is soon to give birth, one of the things that they often will do is devote a fair amount of time to select the right name for that baby boy or baby girl. Or on the other hand, when a group of people wish to found maybe a company or corporation, they'll choose and select very carefully the name. Often that should be used to designate it. Well, today, why don't we think about, from the biblical standpoint, the name that you and I are privileged and, yea, blessed so very much to wear. But you may notice near the bottom of that slide that it is a word, it's a name for which there's a fair amount of confusion. In fact, there's a great deal of misunderstanding surrounding it. And today, let's unpack some of that and let's try to understand that consideration even better. This next slide will begin that journey. It'll do so by beginning at the following point. The word Christian. We each knew that that was based on the title, that particular word we're going to consider today. Well, as you think about that word Christian, notice it's easy to write it and spell it. C-H-R-I-S-T-I-A-N. Christian. The journey, however, for us, asks us to contemplate this. It's fair to say, isn't it, that surely we would wish to wear a name that would please God. It is not our selection to, of course, choose some name with which God would be displeased. You'll notice in 1 Corinthians 10, 31, for instance, on that occasion, Paul asserted, whatever you do, do to the glory of God. Now, if that has to do with the actions of the church in Corinth, surely it would have been descriptive of the name that they were to wear. Or that verse in Colossians 3.17, Whatever you do in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks unto God and the Father by Him. And you'll notice with me there that reference was made to word. And surely the word Christian is a word. It's a very descriptive consideration to be sure. It might well be in the final analysis to that in 1 Peter 4.11, Peter admonished those of his day and you and me as well, if any man speak, let him speak as the oracles of God. You and I in our respect for God and our desire to serve and please Him would wish to wear then a name that would be properly honoring of His will and would be a name that would please Him. It is for that reason you might note then those verses that I've asked you to consider in following. We would then never wish to wear a name that would either fall short of or go beyond that which God has Himself identified. 
You'll notice particularly in Psalm 119 verse 160, the statement therein made about the interpretation of the Word of God. In fact, aren't we admonished there that it's the sum, S-U-M, of God's Word that is so vital and significant? For as we strive to do that which He has commanded, we don't select one verse to the ignoring of others, but we strive to lift high all of it. What then is the name that God has described? What's the name He has presented? I like Paul's famous question along that line, don't you? What saith the Scripture? I strongly anticipate that it would be a very regretful thing if one on the day of judgment were to attempt to say, well, I wore this name thinking that you would be pleased with it, only to hear him say, where do you find that in my word? No wonder today our interest is then to think, well, what does the Word of God have to say about that? About the middle of that slide. You notice that in the Word of God, there are three occasions within the pages of the New Testament wherein we find a particular word employed. A word that, quite frankly, has a great deal of power and significance. A word that has a great deal of beautiful meaning attached to it. We'll be looking at each of these during the course of the lesson this morning. But might I ask you at least at this point to notice in a broad way where they occur. Two of them are in the book of Acts. Acts 11 verse 26. Later in the book of Acts, Acts 26 verse 28. And finally in 1 Peter chapter 4 verse 16. When we come to all of those in their context in just a moment, our goal, our desire shall be then to look with care at those passages. But to precede them, or at least to preface that discussion, let me ask you to notice the bottom of this slide. I'm sure it has been a bothersome thing to you as it has been for, for Denise and myself, as we have on occasion noticed various readings and articles and references. This word Christian, you and I, though we may lift that with such highness and such respect, might I say that there are others who look upon that word very differently. In fact, let me just simply say there are some who would very powerfully assert that in our day, that in the ancient day when that word was first given, it was given as an insult. It was given derogatorily. It was given basically by the enemies of God, and it was basically pronounced upon those who were the followers of Jesus. You hear in that, don't you, that if that's true, then that means those who gave that name were not giving it in a prized way, they weren't giving it in a respectful way, and they were not giving it as an honor. They were heaping on these a degree of insult. Now let me say at the very bottom of that, here's a direct quotation from a gentleman who is in some ways highly regarded in religious circles. But it says the New Testament's use of this word, and that's the word Christian, indicates that it was a term of derision, a term placed upon Christ's followers by their critics. And I would ask you to notice at the bottom of that slide, I have written the, biblicals, the Bible's answer to that. This gentleman's statement is patently wrong. And we're about to study that during the course of our lesson this morning. What he has asserted is not right. What he has asserted, in fact, goes against the grain of biblical revelation and the truth and the understanding that comes of the Word of God. What is then the perspective on the word Christian? 
when you and I wear that name, isn't it true that there are some in our day who feel as if you should apologize for it? Our culture has reached a point where on occasion some seem to be under the impression that maybe I need to apologize. Maybe I need to equivocate for being a Christian. May you and I never think that way. May we understand that that word has a very rich and promising and powerful history, not because of anything humans have done, but because of what God has done. And today, as we think then about the word Christian, let's begin our journey with that Acts chapter 11 passage. As we do that, we will first begin to ask rather carefully, so the very first time in all of the Bible that we find that word Christian is in this passage. In Acts chapter 11, we remember that a very interesting set of events began to unfold. And historically, at the top of that slide, you'll notice my attempt to at least bring to our mind some of those things. First of all, the gospel message, we're told in verses 19 and following, began to be rather widely published because of the persecution that arose after the stoning of Stephen. That was a monumental event. With the stoning of Stephen and the persecution that arose from it, the truth of the gospel went all over the place. Not the least of which was Phenice, Antioch, and Cyprus. Those places there mentioned in Acts chapter 11, you notice one of them was an island. And as the gospel came to that particular part of the world, interesting isn't it then that you see some success? The success housed both in the preaching to the Jews as well as to the Gentiles. And the Word of God highlights the success that was enjoyed. May I call to your attention specifically verse number 21. And the hand of the Lord was with them, and a great number believed and turned unto the Lord. So as the Word of God was proclaimed and preached, notice it says a great number of people came to appreciate the truth thereof and turned their life to the direction which that gospel had, had presented. But with all that success came the observation. The church in Jerusalem was concerned. Remember, Jerusalem was several dozen miles from the areas where these congregations, or at least these people were. And that Jerusalem church wanted to make sure that the faithfulness was ingrained in those individuals and that they remained true and steadfast to those things that were the truth. So what did they do? They sent Barnabas, a person whom they had great confidence in to go and instruct and to teach and to set forth the matters of this place. As Barnabas came, it's interesting what it says about Barnabas. For you'll notice in verse number 24, he was a good man and full of the Holy Ghost and of faith and much people was added to the Lord. Here was a successful worker in the cause of Jesus. But notice verse 25. Then departed Barnabas to Tarsus. Here Barnabas was involved in a very successful work for the Lord, and yet it says he left, but not permanently. Verse 25 says, He went to Tarsus to seek Saul. The work apparently was flourishing so in this area, and he was already apprised of the greatness and the capabilities of a man named Saul. He went to get him to bring him back, hopefully, so that he could also participate in and push the boundaries of the work of God forward. So note verse 26. And when he had found him, he brought him into Antioch. 
Saul was receptive to his request. Saul came here to Antioch, and the text says it came to pass that a whole year they assembled themselves with the church and taught much people. And the disciples were called Christians first in Antioch. The disciples were called Christians first in Antioch. Doesn't it have a sweet presentation to it? Here as Barnabas had gone to get Saul, and Saul had now come, and for a whole year they had labored with the congregation there, laboring with those individuals and those disciples, instilling within, within them the power and majesty of the truth of God. But then it says the disciples were called Christians first in Antioch. What might we say then about that name? The gentleman you and I noted a moment ago, here was a scholar of our day who asserts that the critics of the cross gave the name Christian. This text says the disciples were called Christians first at Antioch. We might ask a few questions. First, who gave that name? Was it the critics or was it God? Would you note the following thing with me? That name Christian was given by the God of heaven. Critics didn't dream it up. Those who were opposed, those who were enemies of the cross of Christ did not come up with it. Rather, it was a choice, a selection of God. And may I offer these considerations to you. First of all, the word called as it appears in that verse literally means to receive a name or title. To receive a name or title. And furthermore, it is given from God. There are other places in the New Testament where that same Greek word is translated or at least utilized to present a given thought. I've only selected a few of them. Could I ask you to notice the sense of warning and the clear and definitive message from God that appeared in all of these passages wherein this same word appears. In Matthew chapter 2, verses 12 and 22, on that occasion surrounding the birth of Jesus, reference and record is given about how that God warned those of that day. But that word warn is the same word translated here, called. Notice God's the one that gave the warning relative to Archelaus as well as to the things surrounding Herod. Notice another example in Acts 10 verse 22. On the occasion of the conversion of Cornelius in that rather monumental chapter. Isn't it true therein that we find one more time a warning, a reference given that was specifically from God? God gave it. Perhaps finally in Hebrews 8 verse number 5. As one thinks back to the scene of the tabernacle and the New Testament writer's description of it, notice those plans and that pattern was wholly from God. Same Greek word is utilized. Perhaps it's fair to say then that so far we seem to be under the impression very clearly that this name Christian was not merely given by the enemies of the cross. Let's develop that point perhaps a little bit more clearly by referring to the text that Brother John read in our hearing a moment ago. Would you revisit with me Isaiah chapter 62? The last several chapters of Isaiah are a section of the Word of God that details in such pristine beauty a set of events that were going to transpire when the Messiah was to come. Remember, Isaiah labored about seven and a half centuries prior to the birth of Jesus. 
And yet as he looked down the stream of time, God delivered through him these magnificent statements. Let's again notice verses 1 and 2 of Isaiah 62. For Zion's sake will I not hold my peace, and for Jerusalem's sake I will not rest, until the righteousness thereof go forth as brightness, and the salvation thereof as a lamp that burneth. To think about the idea set forth in that passage. For Zion's sake will I. Notice, reference is made to the personal pronoun I. And on this occasion, God thunderously through the prophet asserted, I'm going to do something at a particular point in an event in time. I will not hold my peace. And for Jerusalem's sake, I won't rest. Jerusalem had occupied a very special place. And we realize it was going to be far greater because of what was going to happen there at some point in the future from that time. It's true that Jerusalem was David's capital that was selected for us as we read the first few chapters of 2 Samuel. But something greater than that was going to be. You and I know in the New Testament something wonderful happened there in Acts chapter 2. Something great happened there as all four gospel accounts closed. Jerusalem's going to hold a special place. It says, I will not hold my peace. And for Jerusalem's sake, I will not rest until, note the preposition, until the righteousness thereof go forth. As Isaiah looked again through the stream of time, there was going to be a moment, an event, wherein righteousness would ring out, if you will, from Jerusalem. And it says, and the salvation thereof is a lamp that burns. Whatever was going to happen at Jerusalem was going to be part and parcel of salvation. The human family's deliverance from the awful clutches of sin. As we go to the next verse, it says, notice what else was going to happen. And the Gentiles shall see thy righteousness. As these blessed events surrounding Jerusalem were to take place, it was going to impact not just Jews, but even Gentiles would be blessed to be the recipients of the beautiful righteousness and the message thereof from God. You and I know well in the Old Testament that the Gentiles were rather distinct, weren't they? The children of Abraham through Jacob were those that were reckoned as Jews, the Hebrews if you please, and they were blessed to receive by physical birth the blessings that were afforded to them. But here God says, this of which I'm speaking concerning Jerusalem, it's going to be a blessing not just to those that might be Jews, but even to Gentiles. For it says, they shall see thy righteousness. At this point, that verse closes by saying, In all kings thy glory, and thou shalt be called by a new name. The event surrounding this circumstance was going to be inclusive of a new name. And notice God says which the mouth of the Lord will name. Critics aren't going to give it. Enemies of the cross won't give it. The mouth of God's going to call it. Whatever it was under prescription and under view at this point is a sweet name that God was going to pick. At this point, let's find the fulfillment. Notice again the details were provided. The word until had indicated all we have to do is look in the Word of God and ascertain when the Gentiles receive God's righteousness and then we should look for the fulfillment of this passage. 
in Acts chapter 10, the household of Cornelius, the first recorded Gentile convert to the gospel of Jesus Christ. And oh, what a momentous event it was. But isn't it true, as Peter recounted that event, I would invite you to read with me Acts 11 verse 18. Remember, as Peter was called to give an answer for why he had gone to preach to Gentiles, in the aftermath, this is what he said. When they heard these things, that's 11, Acts eleven eighteen, they held their peace and glorified God, saying, Then hath God also to the Gentiles granted repentance unto life. Question, had the Gentiles received the righteousness of God? text says they had. Salvation was theirs. Repentance into life was theirs. That of which Isaiah 62 had spoken had come to pass. The time for the new name was here. Eight verses later. We were just reading in Acts 11, 18. Eight verses later in Acts 11, 26. It says the disciples were called Christians first in Antioch. May you and I be apprised of the fact then that this name Christian has a deep and profound history. Isaiah 62 had prophesied it was going to be. And it was to be given by the mouth of the God of heaven. All those individuals who suppose that the critics of the cross gave it are mistaken. God gave that name. And of course, it is still alive and well today. As you and I look further on that slide... Isn't it rather fascinating then to reflect upon how great that name Christian is? It is a word that has a deep and rich history. Even Isaiah knew that such a thing was going to be. God again says, when the Gentiles receive my righteousness, you'll be given a new name. This isn't a name that had been dreamed up prior to that and then changed. It was new. C-H-R-I-S-T-I-A-N, Christian. The disciples were called Christians first in Antioch. You'll notice then later in Isaiah 62, in verse number 12, holy people are referenced. Those Christians would be holy individuals. May you and I understand how privileged we are. Those holy people who are able to serve today as priests unto God, that royal priesthood spoken of in 1 Peter chapter 2, it might well be in light of those things. So many th things perhaps rush to our mind as we close that slide and then look at those other two passages in which the word Christian appears. So far we've only looked at one, Acts eleven twenty six. Let's look at the second one. In Acts chapter 26, verse 28. I notice I made a typographical error. The top of that should read Acts 26, verse 28. My apologies. On that occasion, later in the book of Acts, we have what may, some may consider an almost incidental reference to the word Christian, but it really isn't so incidental. By that point, Paul, of course, himself had been arrested. He was on his way to Rome. He had made appeal unto Caesar because he hadn't to that point been able to receive the justice available to him and so it was to Caesar that he had appealed, and so to Caesar he would go. But yet on the way to that particular location, many things concerning his life and record are given to us. But on this particular occasion, 
he is allowed to defend himself before another very high-ranking Roman official, a man named Agrippa. Would you notice with me some of the ways that Paul defended himself? In Acts chapter 26, verse number 24, it says, And as he thus spake for himself, Festus said with a loud voice, Paul, thou art beside thyself. Much learning doth make thee mad. But he said, I am not mad, most noble Festus, but speak forth the words of truth and soberness. Paul was defending himself. He didn't make any availed use of some kind of attorney. Paul was eloquent enough, skilled enough, very much capable of defending himself. And you'll notice here in verse number 26, it says, For the king knoweth of the things before whom, thou also, before whom also I speak freely. For I am persuaded that none of these things are hidden from him, for this thing was not done in a corner. King Agrippa, believest thou the prophets? I know that thou believest. Then Agrippa said unto Paul, Almost thou persuadest me to be a Christian. That's an amazing passage. Notice again the statements that are made. Here, as Paul was defending himself, he directly confronted Agrippa. Agrippa, do you believe the prophets? I know you do. You'll notice in verse number 28, Agrippa's only reply was this, Almost, almost, you persuade me to be a Christian. Question, what was it then that Paul had been describing? We aren't given the full presentation that Paul made. We aren't given all the details, but among the things that were spoken, Paul gave a description of those followers of Jesus. And what name did he use? They were called Christians. And here was even a heathen ruler. Paul, almost, you persuade me to be a Christian. Even Agrippa knew what followers of Jesus were called. Even Agrippa understood that that name was designated and it was the high estimation of that which they were able to wear. As Agrippa made that statement, please notice, I would ask you to highlight that here a foreign ruler spoke a very high regarded name. Notice he didn't speak the name as an insult. He spoke it as a description of those who follow Jesus Christ. Question today, a follower of Jesus Christ, what name should that person be called? We have but one biblical answer. Now, men have offered many others. Men have offered a number of additional possibilities, but our question isn't that. Our question is, what were they called in Acts eleven twenty six? What did Agrippa know of them in the first century to be called in Acts 26, 28? One last consideration in 1 Peter 4. Let's turn to that one as well and look one more time at what the inspired apostle Peter had to say. 1 Peter 4. I would ask you to notice again a few of the statements about the character of that chapter. Much is found in it about the difficulties surrounding what Christians faced in the first century. The key word of the book of 1 Peter is the word suffering. The affliction that was characteristic of their walk in faith. However, in this chapter, it says, beginning in verse number 12, Beloved, think not it strange concerning the fiery trial which is to try you, 
as though some strange thing happened unto you, but rejoice inasmuch as ye are partakers of Christ's sufferings, that when His glory shall be revealed, ye may be glad also with exceeding joy. To those first century individuals, Peter said, Don't you be alarmed and surprised if you find difficult persecution because of your Christianity. And so verse 14, If ye be reproached for the name of Christ, happy are ye. For the Spirit of glory and of God resteth upon you. On their part He is evil spoken of, but on your part He is glorified. It's true, isn't it, that the world may in fact do things in regard to the reputation of God that are very hurtful. But yet you and I will always glorify God. And so verse 15, But let none of you suffer as a murderer or a thief or as an evildoer or busybody in other men's matters. Yet if any man suffer as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God on this behalf. If any man suffer as a Christian, don't be ashamed. Notice again, it's not something to apologize for. You and I live in a culture where it seems as if many would almost desire to force us to be apologetic or compromising because we're Christians. Paul said, if any man suffers a Christian, rather Peter, if any man suffers a Christian, don't be ashamed of it. You stand for the truth. You and your life are regarded as those which are attached to the very truth of heaven. And so he said, if any man suffers a Christian, don't be ashamed. But notice how the verse ends. But rather than be ashamed, it says, glorify God. And the actual Greek text perhaps is better rendered as glorify God in this name. What name? The name Christian. You and I have then the lovely privilege of wearing a name, and it's not a name of which we're to be ashamed, but rather a name by which we can glorify the great God of heaven. And it's the name Christian. One will search in vain to find any other designated proper name by which Christians are to be described. That's the only one. And so if you and I wish to speak where the Bible speaks, we will happily and gladly and wonderfully choose to wear that name. As we come near the close of that slide, you'll notice that the verses that follow present a rather chilling conclusion. Because you and I just read verse 16, but notice verse 17 immediately follows it. It says, For the time has come that judgment must begin at the house of God. And if it first begin at us, what shall the end be of them that obey not the gospel of God? You see the connection. Those who obey the gospel of God are the ones called Christians in the previous verse. And those who then do not obey the gospel of God have no right to call themselves Christians because they're not Christians. Our world has gone very far to using that name so broadly. It seems as though anyone who has any semblance of any kind in any way to Jesus in any consideration thinks they have right to call themselves Christians. That isn't so. The New Testament uses that word for baptized believers in Jesus Christ. No one else was ever called a Christian by the mouth of God. But those of us who have obeyed the gospel... 
God permits us pleasingly and beautifully to wear that name. When we emerge from that water grave of baptism, we've been added to the church, and as such, we're in Christ. Galatians 3, 20, 26 and 27, and we're Christians. Perhaps for all those reasons and those considerations, this next slide will bring us to conclude our lesson this morning. Our study has been of the name Christian. We have looked at all three of the New Testament places in wherein that word occurs. But may I ask you to notice the great honor that should come with wearing that name. It is really a special name, a name given by the mouth of God, a name descriptive of a walk of life that transcends all the physical features of this life. For you see, as Christians, we look forward to that beautiful day wherein in judgment we shall be able to, in full coverage by the blood of Christ, be granted entrance into heaven. And so, these final remarks. Two other passages that make some rather interesting observations about a name. And it seems rather clear it refers to the name Christian. First of all, in James 2 verse 7, we are told that it is a worthy name by which we're called. Doesn't that indicate that we should never live beneath our privileges? We should never besmirch it or insult it or disrespect it, but to always wear it with honor and dignity. And finally, in the book of 3 John, you notice in verse number 7 of that chapter that even those wonderful missionaries of the first century, they went forward because of that name. The marching orders by which they, in fact, were moving forward was that beautiful word Christian. Today, isn't it still a worthy name by which we're called? Isn't it still a great name by which you and I can live our life in faithfulness to God? In summary to our lesson this morning, it's been our trust and our desire as we've looked at the Word of God to revisit that word Christian, to wear that name with dignity and proper respect. And although the world may often look upon it very differently, you and I look upon it as the Bible would encourage us to do it. And the name was not given in derision. It was given by the mouth of God. Are you a faithful Christian today? If you're not, why do you wait? Why do you delay? There will never be a better day than this one, the second Sunday in December 2016, to become a Christian if you haven't become one. You see, the Word of God tells what you must do to be a Christian. We aren't left to figure it out. You need to believe in Jesus as the Son of God and do so with all your heart. Repent of your sins, confess His name, and be baptized. If you have taken care of that, you became a Christian. And you were able to wear that name with dignity and the appropriate New Testament presentation. But maybe you have begun to make some poor choices. Maybe you've begun to live in open rebellion to God you realize you're not doing that name any high regard. In fact, you're hypocritically wearing it at this point. Why not come back to your first love today? We'd be delighted to pray to God on your behalf. You, of course, must repent of those sins and confess them. And we'd be delighted to approach God praying that He would forgive you. If we could help you today in either of these ways, a song of encouragement has been selected. We'd invite you to come and do so at once while together we stand and while we sing.